This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Today we'll go to a briefing for journalists on how to report on global warming in 2023. You'll hear a lot of reminders for the subscriber drive at Radio 3CR during this program, but I'd like to add my personal note. Subscribing to Radio 3CR from as little as $40 a year makes you a sort of collaborator with us. You know, we're independent media, this climate action show is very rare in the media landscape. Not many shows consistently cover climate every week and hardly any of them cover what the activists are doing. And that's our little niche area. We're trying to cover what climate action is happening. And please support us. We'd like a lot more support than we get. I don't get much feedback from listeners and we certainly like help on the technical side of producing the program. But meanwhile, something you can do is just support the station, Radio 3CR. Their subscription drive is on now for as little as $40 a year. You can become a part of this big project. Please just check out Radio 3CR website and find the details to subscribe. The moderator is Mark Herzgard from Covering Climate Now. And now. Please join me in giving a very warm virtual welcome to our panelists. Salim Al-Haq, he's the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and a professor at the Independent University of Bangladesh. Salim has long worked closely with diplomats from the global south. He was instrumental in getting the 1.5 degrees Celsius target into the Paris Agreement in 2015, and also the loss and damage agreement at COP27 last November. Uh, second, Bill McKibben. Bill is an author, educator, and environmentalist. He wrote the first mass market book on climate change, The End of Nature, way back in 1989. He has contributed to The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, The Nation, The Guardian, and countless other publications. And he recently co-founded Third Act, a climate activist group for people over the age of 60. And third, Dr. Marcia Rocha. She leads the climate, I'm sorry, leads the climate quantitative assessments team in the environment director, directorate of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris. And she translates and distills the latest climate science into effective policy for member states. Uh, this year, she and her team have focused their research on climate tipping points, as we'll talk about today. And prior to the OECD, she worked for the Climate Action Tracker and uh, advise various UN climate negotiators. Arcia Rocha, I'm gonna start with you if you don't mind. Uh, the New York Times on last Sunday ran a long story uh, detailing that the Amazon is fast approaching a tipping point where deforestation will be so extensive that it will feed on itself and transform much of the world's largest rainforest into savanna. And other recent news coverage has warned about the melting of the so-called Doomsday Glacier, the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. And as I mentioned earlier, 2023 is an El Nino year, so even more extreme events are expected. 
your recent study for the OECD warned that the world is getting perilously close to other tipping points as well. So I'd like you to talk uh, a little bit about how do you evaluate the situation in the Amazon today and in Antarctica, and what should journalists keep in mind going forward? And I will just mention, as you told me in the green room before we begin, you are a native of Brazil. So why don't we start with that, the situation with the Amazon and uh, the Antarctica and those tipping points? Yes, thank you so much for this uh, very, very important question and very close to, to my heart, as you say. And I think many of us, when we talk about the Amazon, uh, this is, yeah, this touches us all. So, yeah, as you said, the really tricky issue with this, um, with the Amazon tipping element, uh, the, what makes it a little bit different from other tipping elements is that there is a combination of uh, two forces that can drive the Amazon through to its critical threshold. On the one hand, global warming, which is caused by all countries in the world. And then on the other hand, deforestation, which is a local, uh, a local problem. So uh, together, these, uh, these two forces really can drive the Amazon to a self-perpetuating drying, uh, uh, drying cycle that it then cannot get, get itself out. Um, so what is unequivocal is uh, that uh, the Amazon, so the, these, the combination of these two phenomena driving the Amazon to a critical threshold is something that we predicted in models already two decades ago. What happened last year and in the last, I would say two, three years is that we have very clear measurements, so actual evidence that these phenomena are happening so that the deforestation is directly leading to the drying and that the Amazon is losing its resilience for almost 70% 70, 70 of it. It's already really eating itself. It's effectively uh, dying much more than growing. Um, what we also, so we have this evidence and we also have the predictions. So with better evidence, uh, models get better, research uh, get, gets, uh, gets more accurate. And what we know is that uh, these, uh, th this is happening much, much faster than we ever predicted. Um, so because this is, uh, so the, the, the issue of global warming, which is uh, really, uh, the, let's say the responsibility of all countries, this uh, will, can drive the Amazon uh, to a critical threshold. Uh, it's not isolated here. We need to look at, because deforestation is also driving it, the role, of a Brazilian government in enforcing policies on deforestation can have a very, very important role to play, to play here. The good news is that we know that effective policy can be put in place and has been put in place. And we saw a very positive trend in uh, uh, decreasing deforestation rates in the beginning of the 2000s until more or less 20, 2016 and um, really by 70%. So it was a really true success story in the region, one unprecedented and one that uh, surprised many of us. So we do have a track record that this can work. We also know that this can very quickly change if these policies are relaxed, what, which is what happened over the past six years and deforestation rates started to, to, to increase again. Um, so in the case of the Amazon, I think what is really important uh, on top of uh, monitoring the science really and bridging the gap a little bit between the science and using the science to inform policy in terms of temperature increases, really very closely monitoring uh, deforestation policies in the region. Um, uh, so because deforestation can 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 uh, drive the Amazon and bring it closer to its critical threshold. There's the, the other side of the coin is that reforestation, and that's what scientists have been saying also for the past year, reforestation can also be a way to bind time in this interaction. So that is also, it's not only about counteracting deforestation, but also paying attention to, to efforts in reforestation in the region could really uh, help us uh, uh, prevent or delay uh, the passing of this critical uh, taking place. In terms of what Brazil can do, and I think because the Amazon is uh, to its very largest majority uh, situated in Brazil, 
I think it is really important to pay attention on the implementation of these instruments that have not really been scrapped from legislation. They have just not been enforced. So it's really, uh, so, and, and, and so looking at the, how, how these uh, instruments will be actually implemented and really following. So Brazil is really very transparent or has been under, under Lula very transparent on its reporting of deforestation uh, rates. So there's a great effort uh, done by the uh, Spatial uh, Institute in the Amazon monitoring uh, deforestation. And these numbers, um, I think, are very important to pay very close attention to. Before I go quickly to Bill McKibben, can you speak quickly, Dr. Rocha, about the uh, Thwaites Glacier? Uh, when the stories ran in September, the headline was that this so-called doomsday glacier was literally, quote, hanging on by its fingernails. Mm -hmm. Do you at the OECD share that view that it is that uh, dire? And if it, what's the situation today and what does it mean for reporting all over the world on things like sea level rise? Uh, yes, it's absolutely critical and, and dramatic. Just a, a little disclaimer, the OECD, we do not make those measurements ourselves. We do rely on researchers uh, doing right. that. But this is very consistent with... Uh, with uh, projections that West Antarctica ice sheet may, so we cannot rule out today that it may already have crossed, uh, crossed its tipping point. Um, and we are working, so I think very sobering, and I think one another very important paper that is related to this that made the headlines uh, last year uh, shows us that the, 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 this, the, the ice sheet along other five tipping points can already be crossed at one and a half degrees of warming which is kind of like the best case scenario if we get our act together on emissions mitigation. And that could already mean that uh, along with the West Antarctica ice sheet, the permafrost thaw, uh, coral reefs, Greenland ice sheets, we could already cross those uh, bypassing the 1.5. And this is research led by, by the University of Exeter. It was published also in September last year. So this is very, uh, very consistent with um, with the current projections, with the current evidence of incredibly accelerated rates or um, uh, completely. Uh, so science, usually we publish the conservative estimates. And when we look at the actual evidence of what's happening, things are actually unfolding much faster than the conservative evidence uh, or estimates had told us. So this is in line with that, that we are kind of shifting from uh, with the tipping points where they were previously considered many of these tipping elements as low probability, uh, high impact outcomes. We are seeing that they're really not that low probability anymore in terms of uh, how these uh, how the climate system that climate change is un unfolding. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. You're listening to the Climate Action Show. This episode is from a briefing for journalists at Covering Climate Now for 2023. Building pipelines, cross the land, spilling all that black tar sand. Truly is a vital plan. There's a danger up ahead. There's a danger, danger up ahead. 
If you're not familiar with that concept, a tipping point becomes a self-reinforcing change in the climate system that can then lead to irreversible changes where you get on the other side of the tipping point and it's too late to come back. That is why it is so urgent that action be taken now and not 10 years from now. And that's the perfect segue to my uh, esteemed longtime colleague, Bill McKibben. I'd like to have you talk a little bit about that in relation to what is going on now at uh, especially in Washington and on Capitol Hill, uh, and the prospects for federal action by the United States, which, of course, is not only the world's biggest economy, but is also the source of the largest amount of historical emissions. So how do you see the new balance of power in Washington affecting the chances for climate action this year, especially on implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act? And in particular, what should our fellow journalists be thinking about as they uh, explore these issues? Well, so last year was significant in the US because 34 years and 40 days after Jim Hansen first testified to the US Congress about the reality of what we then called the greenhouse effect, uh, Congress finally passed its first significant climate legislation. They passed it by a scant margin. It was a 50-50 tie broken by the vice president. Uh, and much of that bill had been diminished, gutted by uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia. But in the end, a substantial bill did pass, putting aside large sums of money intended uh, mostly in the form of tax credits to jumpstart the transition to clean energy in the U.S. and hopefully to, in the process continue lowering the price and accelerating this technological uh, 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 move in ways that would have spin-off effects for at least some of the rest of the world. Um, the key technologies are pretty clear. Uh, magnetic induction cooktops are probably the smallest of the three. The other two big ones are uh, heat pumps for people's homes to replace furnaces and electric vehicles to replace their internal combustion engine vehicles. Uh, it, both EVs and e-bikes are now booming, as people know, and that part of the transition seems to be moving fast. Um, the stories to cover, I think, are going to be around increasingly these questions of implementation, execution, and deployment, and the politics of it and what it'll mean. And within a movement, within the kind of context of the climate movement, I think the two things that are going to be really at the forefront this year, because it's not an election year in the US, uh, are big attention to that, those questions around deployment and execution. I wrote a long piece in the New Yorker uh, saying that it, movements are gonna have to get good at helping neighborhoods, communities, cities, states, counties, uh, uh, plan and execute this transition to renewable energy. And then I think the other place that's going to be front and center is an ongoing battle with the uh, big banks and other parts of the financial uh, uh, system about their ongoing support for expansion of fossil fuels. This is now uh, a, a something that every scientific body and every climate scientist has weighed in to say is a terrible idea. And yet the four big American banks, Chase City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, continue to push uh, large sums of money into the hands of the fossil fuel industry. They're the four biggest lenders in the world. This was called into high relief in December when HSBC, biggest bank in Europe by assets, declared that it would no longer be funding uh, uh, new oil and gas field development, which was a good step. And it puts pressure on the other big banks because one of their club has broken with them. The big date for this work uh, in North America this year will be uh, March 21st, three, two, one, two, three when we're uh, organizing protests outside banks uh, across uh, North America uh, with a broad coalition of groups, Third Act, uh, kind of doing some of the coordinating, but the Sierra Club and a large number of other groups joining in as well. So that pressure may be uh, uh, one of the things that's sort of to the fore in the course of the year to come. You're listening to the Climate Action Show.
This episode is from a briefing for journalists at Covering Climate Now for 2023. Policy for climate action in the USA is called the IRA. This stands for the Inflation Reduction Act. Not a very catchy title, is it? But it provides $369 billion for climate and clean energy projects, curbing 40% of US emissions by 2030. One quick follow-up, Bill, before I go to Salim al uh, uh, President Biden has installed uh, to try to implement the Inflation Reduction Act, John Podesta, who of course was the White House Chief of Staff under Bill Clinton and later uh, Barack Obama. And Podesta has said that uh, one of the biggest challenges is to let American consumers know how much the Inflation Reduction Act has in it for them. If you do want to get uh, an electric stove, God forbid, or or switch to EVs or what have you, uh, there are a lot of tax credits available. Seems to me, and I'd like your take on this, if I am a local or for that matter, a national reporter, pretty much any place in the United States, that that would be the story I'd be trying to do. You know, I'm, I'm usually not a fan of news you can use, but in this case, the government is if I understand it correctly, essentially offering lots of money for people to do the right thing for the planet. And watching that unfold at the at the local level could be a very interesting story that is not only important, but that I think viewers and, and readers would like to see. Absolutely. Rewiring America, which is the NGO that's kind of emerging as the uh, uh, front uh, at the front of this fight to help implement the IRA and, and electrify America as much as possible, they estimate that they're in essence, the IRA creates an $8,000 bank account for every American household. Uh, if they figure out if people figure out how to access it and use it. Um, and so making that process as easy as possible is uh, uh, very key. I mean, the good news is that these technologies are better than the ones that they replace. Your magnetic induction cooktop is better than the gas flame that you cook on, um, cheaper, and it doesn't give your kids asthma, which is a nice side benefit. Um, the EV is better than the car you have now. The heat pump is an elegant replacement for the furnace, and they're cheaper to use in the long run. Uh, so having ability to access that IRA money in order to pay the capital costs of these transition is really key. Um, what we're up against is that combination of vested interest and inertia. Uh, to be honest, most of us don't even go down in the basement to look at the furnace unless something goes wrong with it. Uh, and so that's the sort of block that has to be overcome here if we're going to make this change in the time that physics is allowing us. And I will just add to go with your earlier conversation, uh, Jim Hansen uh, just earlier today sent out his predictions for uh, 2023 in terms of temperature. He said it's going to be uh, much warmer than 2022. And that as we move towards 2024, we're probably gonna see the first year when the planet goes past that 1.5 degree threshold. Uh, at least for a little while. So we're in very, very serious water here. And the time for rapid change is obviously right now. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. So there's your headline, fellow journalists, an $8,000 
uh, savings account essentially set up by the federal government to help your audiences per person, $8,000 per person, per, per household, I should say, to go green. That is a great story to follow. And sadly, the second story, we're going to have a lot of extreme weather in 2023. Make sure that when you cover it and your teammates on the weather desk, make sure they connect it to climate change. Uh, the science now is pretty unequivocal on this, uh, that climate change is driving more extreme weather across the world. And we need to be saying that when we report weather, which of course is the number one story on local TV across the United States. Out the ground, killing everything around. Turn the grass to black and brown, there's a danger up ahead. Building pipelines, cross the land, spilling all that black tar sand. Truly is a vital plan. There's a danger up ahead. There's a danger, danger up ahead. What the world needs right now is science. Science sees the world as it is, not as we want it to be. Climate change, it's happening. We need science now to tell us about the solutions. This is why what we do at the Climate Council is so important. I spent my life working out how the world works. It's the only planet we know that has life. Life has helped shape this system for three and a half billion years. And now we are a critical part of driving planetary level changes. We're sort of in the driver's seat now. We can't sit on the sidelines anymore. If you want to solve a problem, you have to take some leadership and fight for a clean, sustainable future. And now I have the distinct pleasure to welcome my uh, longtime friend and colleague, Salim Al-Haq, to our conversation. Uh, Salim has appeared at many of our Covering Climate Now um, press briefings and so forth. So thank you, Salim. I know it's very late in Bangladesh, so thank you for staying up and being with us today. Uh, you missed what I said at the start here. Uh, as you've probably seen, The Guardian broke the story last night that the COP28 president uh, will be the head of one of the biggest oil companies in the world. Uh, so I want to uh, sort of put that as the preface, but the question I really want to ask you is about loss and damage. You've been intimately involved with all those discussions uh, and helping to uh, Global South diplomats to push the loss and damage idea for many, many years. At COP27, it finally was embraced by the world community. Earlier this week on Monday, as I'm sure you saw, uh, the uh, their international donors pledged $9 billion dollars in climate recovery aid to Pakistan, which of course suffered those terrible uh, floods last year. Do you see that $9 billion the way that I think uh, Reuters, a Reuters piece described it as the first step towards loss and damage payments, or is this a one-off? Thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, great to be here with you. Um, so uh, my answer to your question is that, yes, it is the very beginning of uh, dealing with the consequences of our failure to deal with the impacts of climate change. Unfortunately, we have failed to prevent climate change, human-induced climate change from happening. And we have now therefore entered now the era of what I call the era of losses and damages from climate change. And this was recognized last year in COP27 by all countries, including the United States of America, to agree to set up a funding mechanism to help the victims, particularly the victims in the poor countries who didn't cause the problem, but who are suffering the impacts of the problem uh, in, in terms of dealing with addressing with the impacts of climate change. And the devastating floods in Pakistan last year was a very good example of what we're talking about. And the $9 billion that has been now pledged to them includes a very significant amount of support for Pakistan suffering the impacts of human-induced climate change. And as I said, we are now entering the era of 
impacts of climate change, including the United States of America, by the way. You are having floods in California right now as we speak. And I'm watching that in television on Dhaka television in Bangladesh here. It's a global phenomenon. It's happening every single day somewhere in the world. There are uh, weather-related anomalies that are due to human-induced climate change that are causing impacts and suffering for people, losses of lives, in fact, and indeed loss of property and, and uh, other kinds of impacts as well. And so we now have to deal with this. It's a global phenomena that we all are not prepared to do. No country is prepared for this kind of impacts. We all have to work together uh, to work on preparing ourselves and to minimize the even big, bigger impacts that are going to come if we aren't able to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases and keep temperature below the threshold of two degrees. As Bill said, we are probably not going to stay below 1.5, which we had a promise to do in Paris Agreement, but we will start we can still stay below two degrees if we all take actions to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases and stop using fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Salim, is that very likely, though, given that COP28 is going to be presided over by literally the president of one of the world's biggest oil companies? Well, I think you're right. In, in fact, the COPs uh, are increasingly becoming irrelevant as events. Uh, we need to be dealing with this problem on every single day, everywhere in the world. And we have already agreed to take actions. The COP that I would uh, refer us to keep an eye on is COP21 in Paris seven years ago. COP, uh, uh, the Paris Agreement, we agreed what to do. Ever since then, we just have to do what we agreed to do. Now, whether we come to a COP and we've done enough or we haven't done enough, it really doesn't matter. And unfortunately, uh, with the COP28 coming up, when the, uh, the, they've just announced the, uh, the presidency of the COP being a, a person from the oil industry in uh, UAE, does not uh, give us a lot of hope that they will take actions that are needed. But nevertheless, it does not matter. Every single day, we need to be taking action to deal with impacts of climate change all over the world. And we have an agreement to do that, which is the Paris Agreement. So in my view, we have agreed what to do. The countries have agreed what to do. We just need to implement what we've been doing. And whether or not we have a COP, a successful COP or a useful COP, really is immaterial anymore. The COPs have become irrelevant. Action on the ground is what is relevant. Thank you. That's Salim Al-Haq. He's speaking to us from Dhaka, Bangladesh. He's been instrumentally involved in a lot of the uh, COP negotiations that he now says are irrelevant. Sadly, as we've pointed out at Covering Climate Now, here in the United States uh, last summer and the summer before, most coverage of the extreme weather, especially on U.S. television networks, did not make the climate connection. And they were running those stories at the top of the broadcast. It was the lead story and in a tangible impact on U.S. communities. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up, and we're still talking about revolution. You're listening to the Climate Action Show. This episode is from a briefing for journalists at Covering Climate Now for 2023. So how do we define success, climate justice, IRA? Yeah, well, it's a very good question, and I'm not sure that anyone's got a great metric yet exactly for figuring it out. Um, but it is really important to note that the IRA really almost uniquely among large federal legislation tries to steer uh, a good chunk of the resources that it has in the direction of vulnerable communities, impacted communities, environmental justice communities, communities making an energy transition. So coal mine communities, things like that. Um, 
And this is going to be hard work because, of course, the laws of political gravity tend to funnel money in just the opposite direction towards the most affluent communities that are most equipped to apply for grants, navigate the federal bureaucracy, on and on and on. And I think this is a place where happily we have strong environmental justice groups around this country that will be focused on this and are focused on it and will be able to tell follow the flow of funds, to, at least to some degree, through Podesta's office and elsewhere to see if they're ending up in the places where they were clearly intended to be going. But it's, I, I, I would, I, this is one of these places where I would caution people not to um, rely on the promises in the text of the IRA, uh, but really try to push and see what's happening on the ground in communities. Always good reporting advice. Get out there on the ground. Question for uh, Dr. Rocha here from our colleague at uh, uh, Agence France Press, Rochelle Glisman. Uh, she is uh, interested in climate solutions, but in particular, how can we better cover the biodiversity crisis and its interlocking with the climate crisis? And uh, since you are from Brazil, obviously that's that's a place. The Amazon is a place where those two crises very much come together, but. If you're a reporter who is not in Brazil, do you have some advice for them? So, of course, the Amazon tipping point and the Amazon being this hot spot of endemic species, it's a very critical um, providing all these ecosystem services through biodiversity. It's one to pay attention to. Uh, the links there are, are very well understood. Somehow the agendas uh, within governments, they still quite separate, but I see that they have this approach to climate um, is more and more intimately linked to, to biodiversity. So I think it is important to pay attention to, to that, to really understanding how this biodiversity and the change to ecological systems that the climate change is bringing, really understand how this can be attributed to climate change. And I think science can inform us on, on that. Those are two agendas that go absolutely hand in hand, and I think this is um, uh, this is not about to change. And we saw at the COP15 biodiversity talks in Montreal in December that the world's governments agreed on a so-called 30 by 30 plan, that is to protect 30% of the Earth's land and sea areas by the year 2030. Of course, similar pledges were made in 2010 and not carried out. Dr. Rocha, do you see any new, I mean, you're there in Paris with the OECD, which of course is the uh, core of the European Union economies. Do you see a new appetite there uh, among the EU states for really being serious about that 30 by 30 goal? Um, so far, those are announcements. I would say like the COP26 uh, in Glasgow with the main players uh, really also pledging to, to protect uh, like Brazil, Indonesia. So I think it's really important to pay attention to the big players here because this is uh, for, for preservation of biodiversity. But um, honestly, for now, I haven't seen uh, great um, uh, engagement, but it's my, it might be too soon to, to say as well. There's a danger and it's up ahead For racking oil out the ground, killing everything around Turn the grass to black and brown, there's a danger up ahead Building pipelines across the land, spilling all that black tar sand Truly is a vital plan there's a danger up ahead. There's a danger, danger up ahead. Okay, here's a question for you, Salim. And this comes from the, our colleague at the Washington Post. Let me just get, it's Michael Robinson Chavez at the Washington Post. Uh, what are the coastal populations in Bangladesh able to do in terms of preventing salinization and erosion from sea level rise, which of course is a big issue. Bangladesh at the bottom of uh, a delta at the bottom of uh, many of the world's largest rivers. So what can the coastal populations in Bangladesh do in the face of uh, sea level rise? Salim. 
Thank you, uh, Mark, and thanks for that question. That's a great question. And in fact, it's not so much what they can do, it's what they actually are doing already. So Bangladesh happens to be one of the countries that is most impacted by climate change, and it's not new news to us. We've, been, we've known this for the last decade or more. And we've not been sitting idle. We've not been waiting for the rest of the world to get its act together. We've been taking actions on our own uh, to try and do what we can. We can't solve the problem globally. It's a global problem, but we can certainly prevent the worst from happening by being better prepared. And we call that adaptation to climate change. And I would say Bangladesh is a global champion in adaptation to climate change particularly in the low-lying coastal zone of the country where tens of millions of people are being affected by both slow onset sea level rise, salinity intrusion into the water systems in the low-lying coastal area, and then occasional uh, high-speed cyclonic storms that come and hit us every now and again uh, and devastate the population as well. Bangladesh has one of the, I would say, in fact, the best cyclone warning and evacuation systems. And we have reduced the loss of life from cyclones enormously. In, in fact, better than the United States of America. We are the world leaders in reducing the loss of life from cyclones. That doesn't mean there's still a lot of loss and damage. There's still a lot of loss and damage that occurs, but loss of life does not occur anymore because we can now successfully warn and evacuate over 3 million people living in the low-lying coastal zone of the country. And we've done this in successive cyclones in the recent past. Whereas in the, in the decades in the past, cyclones of those nature, of those magnitudes used to kill tens of thousands and sometimes even hundreds of thousands of people. We have brought the death toll to the few dozens now. And that's one of the biggest achievements in the world in terms of adapting to the impacts of climate change. But we're not doing enough. We, we still have a long way to go. Climate change impacts are still causing problems. And we are doing what we can to deal with our impacts of climate change. But I would say at a global scale, Bangladesh is actually way ahead of other countries in terms of the population, understanding what needs to be done, knowing what has to be done, and doing what has to be done when we have to do it. And this is something that other countries can learn from us, including the rich countries like the United States of America, who are actually not well prepared at all. The people of Bangladesh are very well prepared. They are doing what they can, and they are at the, I would say, the forefront of being adapted to these new conditions of impacts of climate change now, which is a growing phenomenon. It's going to happen uh, whether we like it or not. We are now living in the era of impacts of climate change, causing losses of damages from climate change. So if you want, you know, we journalists oftentimes like the counterintuitive story, right? So Bangladesh, which is too often seen in Henry Kissinger's horrible old phrase as a basket case, Bangladesh is actually a world leader in climate change adaptation. And in particular, as Salim wrote in Time magazine right before COP27, we in the media can learn from our colleagues in Bangladesh media, which has done much more coverage of the climate story. And that's why, as, as Salim just said, the average Bangladeshi knows far more about climate change than the average American does. So let's, let's uh, take a lesson there as well. Hi, I'm Michelle Briere, Mani Dubonet's Ojibwe from Canada. And I am Shakti Hayes from the Cree Nation, Canada. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. And we love and support Community Radio. Why? Because it speaks the truth. Uh, Bill, a question for you from our colleague, our esteemed colleague at Al Jazeera, Nick Clark. Let me just scroll back up here. Uh, and he said that uh, Bill recently wrote uh, on alternative technologies used to battle climate change from carbon capture and, and storage to sunshades in space. How important does Bill think it is for journalists to focus on these alternative technologies, or does that misdirect focus from the job at hand and give the fossil fuel companies a get out of jail free card? You know, one of the points of that long piece in the New Yorker, Nick, was that at the moment, um, I mean, the one thing that's been absolutely clear from the beginning of this uh, whole story is that the fossil fuel industry will use anything as a distraction to avoid having to change its business model. 
and hence uh, that's you know how they're looking at things like solar geoengineering, which is what I was mostly writing about. Um, the it, it's a fascinating story because there's parts of the world, uh, including people in places like Bangladesh or the low-lying Pacific Islands or things that are beginning to say, we better be studying this because we don't know if there's any other out for our uh, parts of the world eventually. But for the moment, for the rest of this decade, I think it's very clear that the job one, two, and three is to be moving to clean energy and seeing how far we can get in the hopes that we can avoid having to even think about the kind of break the glass solutions uh, that are and hideously dangerous ones that are things like geoengineering. So that's, that's I think, where the discussion is at the moment. Um, um, and the one thing always to be remembered is that big oil will do pretty much anything to keep us in our current path. Their job is getting harder because the alternatives are getting easier and cheaper every day. And we really are at a moment when it's possible to imagine a rapid end to the 700,000 year human habit of setting things on fire. We don't need to anymore. Uh, the good Lord hung a large ball of burning gas 93 million miles away in the sky, and we now have the wit to make full use of it, to capture its rays on photovoltaic panels, to take advantage of the fact that it differentially heats the earth, creating the winds that power those turbines. We even have the batteries to store them when the sun goes down and the wind drops. So that's the main job at the moment. If we fail at that job, then we're going to have to do some we're going to live on a very difficult planet and there's going to be a lot of bad things happening. Let's try and get in a few more questions here. Here's a question from Iris Crawford of the nonprofit Quarterly, and this is for uh, Marcia Rocha. Uh, Dr. Rocha, do you see the governments of Brazil's neighboring countries, such as Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, Guyana, are they possibly uh, going to collaborate with Brazil and the new Lula administration to ramp up efforts at reforestation and stopping deforestation in the Amazon? I know that you're a scientist and not a policy advisor, but you are also a Brazilian. So can you uh, give us your unofficial take on that question, please? Sure. Um, before I talk about that, can, may I add, may I uh, make a reflection on what Bill uh, was saying, sure. because I think which relates to tipping points. So one growing narrative in the tipping points community and is that just as the climate is sort of like the bad tipping points are part of the, the big threat that we face today, that that same logic can be, can also provide a solution. So we've been in order to, because as uh, my fellow panelists have said, we need a rapid change and we need a rapid change now. Uh, and this is to counteract the risk of tipping points, positive tipping points, what we call the positive tipping points become crucial. There's no mitigation strategy that prevents us from crossing some of these thresholds that do not uh, actually put in, in place or do not count on uh, drastic changes. Positive tipping points being um, inflection uh, points in social, economic and technological trends that lead to uh, systems change, which are then accompanied by a, an accelerated, a downward uh, emissions trend. So uh, I think it is uh, important to sort of like hammer on technological approaches, for example. It does make sense to hammer and to pay attention to, to the better understanding, to legitimizing those solutions, the ones that are that are valid and that would contribute, that would create the conditions for an inflection point, which is something that once it starts, it's also irreversible because it provides a better solution to the ones that we currently have. Uh, it's hard to get there, but once they're there, they do provide uh, a, a really a, 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 an advantage to what we currently have. So uh, I think it is really important to focus on that, giving that, that spinning of and I think there's growing literature, uh, there will be growing literature, there will be growing attention in the scientific community in studying the potential of these, what are the potential positive tipping points? It's a multidisciplinary uh, endeavor to identify those. 
but it is really important to not lose that, uh, not lose sight of that, uh, that 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 change and the public awareness for these uh, potential changes and these potential measures um, uh, needs to to happen in order for these positive tipping points to to uh, to be to to actually happen. Uh, on the sort of neighboring country South American collaboration, uh, there is appetite. I think Lula has had a very difficult uh, start um, to, and it's not it's not going to be easy. Let's say in the next uh, coming months, I do think there is appetite, and there has there is history of countries uh, working together, and there has been support from this government to his candidacy. So. I would expect, and this is really just um, my opinion, that this would happen, that collaboration, especially in, in the Amazon, uh, would, uh, would happen. So that's another story to follow. And we will be asking our colleagues at Suma Uma, uh, which is the name of a, an iconic tree in the Amazon. That's the name of that Covering Climate Now partner located in Manaus in the heart of the Amazon. We'll be asking them to, to keep us briefed on those developments. Out the ground, killing everything around. Turn the grass to black and brown, there's a danger up ahead. Building pipelines, cross the land, spilling all that black tar sand. Truly is a vital plan. There's a danger up ahead. There's a danger, danger up ahead. Now a question from Egypt, from uh, our colleagues at uh, Al Aram, which is kind of like the New York Times of uh, Egypt. A journalist uh, named Ashraf Amin asked, this is for you, Salim, what should be the next steps in pushing for the loss and damage fund and how do we as journalists uh, best convey that to our audiences? Thank you, Mark, and thank you uh, for our journalist from Egypt for that question. I, I think it's a very great question. So let me share with you my thinking on where we stand on the issue of loss and damage, particularly the groundbreaking uh, decision in COP27 to agree. All countries have now agreed that this is a problem that we need to address and that we need to be looking at sources of funding to help the victims of human-induced climate change. All countries have agreed, including the United States. So we are now on the same page. This is no longer an adversarial relationship with some countries asking for other countries to take action. We have now all agreed. That to me is a breakthrough of Im immense proportions and Sharm el-Sheikh and COP27 is responsible. And I want to uh, recognize the uh, the role of the Egyptian government and the Egyptian host uh, of uh, COP27 presidency for making that breakthrough possible. And also acknowledge the United States of America in allowing that to happen because they had been the, the uh, recalcitrant party in not allowing it to happen for many years. But they changed their mind and we have welcomed that. So now we're all on the same page. The question now is, what do we need to do to take things forward as rapidly as, as possible, particularly between now and the remaining months to COP28 in uh, Dubai in November this year. We need to set up something that is uh, effective up and running as quickly as possible. Find the money from somewhere. In my view, we need to be looking to tax the fossil fuel companies who are making exorbitant profits as we speak right now because of the Ukraine-Russia uh, war. Uh, they happen to be making tens of billions of uh, dollars of profits, uh, and we need to be taxing them. If we put a 10% tax on the fossil fuel companies, and there are only a few dozen companies that we need to uh, consider for this, then that would generate billions of dollars. And we need, need not talk to taxpayers or tax, tax taxpayers for the money. We need to just tax the fossil fuel companies who are making profits. Let them keep 90% of their profits. Let's tax 10% of their profits and put it into this fund. And then if we, we need to think about what the fund would do, and that's something that we are already working on, and we hope in COP28 
we can manage to find ways in which the fund can be managed, who would manage it, how it would be managed. And then finally, who would get the money? And in my view, the priority needs to be the poorest people on the planet who are being affected by the impacts of climate change, who didn't cause the problem, but who are being affected by the problem. And all of us need to be taking our share of responsibility to make sure that they get funded, they get the funding that they need to deal with the impacts of climate change. And the Pakistan floods is a very good example of that, but there are similar events taking place all over the world. In fact, right now in Somalia, they have a major drought and people are losing their lives and their livelihoods because of the impacts of climate change. And the Somalis have pro uh, probably contributed 0.0000000001% of greenhouse gas emissions that caused the problem. The rich countries around the world have caused the problem. We owe it to the people in Somalia to help them to impact, to deal with the impacts of climate change. The good news is we've all agreed to do this. We now need to make it happen and be effective in doing it. Uh, between now and COP28, the time is very short. We can't wait years for doing this. We now have to do it within a matter of months. I hope we can do it. I'm very optimistic that we can do it. Uh, we are at the very end of the hour here, Salim. So a very quick follow-up and then a very quick answer from you. Very specifically, where will these negotiations be happening so the journalists can cover them? Uh, you, you mentioned that there will be work going on between now and COP28 next November. Are there specific uh, places and dates? And will how much of that will be available to journalists? And of course, journalists can always be asking behind the scenes for government ministers and NGOs. So can you point us A, towards those places and any specific uh, contacts and sources that we should rely on in addition to yourself, of course? Sure. Great, Mark. So very quickly, uh, under the COP27 decision on loss and damage, we are setting up a transitional committee that is now in the process of happening that will uh, take place very soon. Uh, keep an eye on the UNFCC website they will let you know when the transitional committee will be set up and you can follow them. There is going to be a, a, a dialogue on loss, on loss and damage. This came out of the Glasgow COP, COP26. There was a three-year dialogue uh, on loss and damage. We had the first dialogue in June last year in Bonn. The second will be taking place in June this year in Bonn. So people who want to follow this, please follow the UNFCC uh, Glasgow dialogue on loss and damage taking place in Bonn in June. And then prior to COP28, which will be in Dubai in November, the Scottish government is likely to hold a, a, a major event in Scotland, which they did last year in October, uh, where all the people working on loss and damage will be coming together. And I would recommend that the journalists who are interested in following this issue uh, uh, participate in that and follow that process as well. Thank you to Mark Herzgard from Covering Climate Now and his guests, Dr. Salim Ulhaq from Bangladesh, Dr. Marcia Rocha from Brazil, and author Bill McKibben from the USA. The podcast of this show is at 3CR Climate Action. Please become a subscriber to Radio 3CR and help to keep us on air. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. So we have a policy of no one gets left behind. School kids in the coastal zone get training on, they get assigned households, you know, a widow living on her own. There'll be two school children whose assignment is to go and get the widow and take her to a, a shelter to make sure that she uh, is taken to a shelter. And, and it's the most effective cyclone evacuation in the whole world, I can tell you. It's the most effective in the whole world. Over recent years, it's become impossible to ignore the impacts of climate change that are already with us. From sea level rise and coastal erosion in the Torres Strait to catastrophic bushfires and floods and months-long heat waves in India, millions of people are already facing the climate chaos caused by the fossil fuel industry. And while we know that the solution to climate change is to end the age of fossil fuels and build a just transition to renewable energy, governments and banks keep pouring money into the polluting companies who are causing the problem. That's why no matter who is in government, it's up to ordinary people to join together and fight to end funding for fossil fuels. 350 Australia has a plan to take on the big banks funding the climate crisis. Fossil fuels can't survive on their own. 
If we can cut their funding, then we help save our climate. Every fossil fuel project stopped, every dollar redirected to renewables will make a difference for the people we love and even more so for our children and grandchildren. 350 is a global grassroots movement taking on the fossil fuel industry with students, grandparents, artists, professionals, activists, and more. And there's a role for everyone in our movement, no matter your age, experience, race, ability, or gender. If you've wanted to do something about climate change, jump on our website and we'll connect you with the members of our movement fighting for a safe climate. Just head to 350.org.au forward slash get involved. There's a danger up ahead. There's a danger, danger up ahead.